House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Uh, today we are talking about a book called Indecent Advances. It's a hidden history of the true crime and prejudice uh, before Stonewall. Um, and with us to talk about this is the author, James Polchin. Thank you for being here, James. Thank you, Alan. Great to be here. Uh, so, James, I have, to, I have to start out with saying, um, what made you write this book? Like, what was the, um, what was the driving force for you? Right. So, um, a few years ago, actually several years ago, um, I came across these... Um, scrapbooks um, at Yale University. I was doing research on um, Carl Van Vechten, who is this writer and photographer from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. He was a um, very uh, key figure for the Harlem Renaissance. He was a big promoter of um, African-American writers and artists in the 20s and 30s. And um, He had collected... Um, through this period, he collected um, what I call kind of ephemera of queer life as well. Um, he was married to a woman, but uh, twice, actually, and uh, but he also had many um, gay lovers uh, throughout his life. And, and so he, he amassed this, these um, scrapbooks that included uh, drag ball uh, flyers and advertisements for gay novels at the time. Um, and mixed into these scrapbooks were these clippings of true crime stories from the press. Um, and so uh, I had known about some of this cultural life that he was gathering and, and pasting into these scrapbooks, but I didn't know about these true crime stories. Um, some of them, uh, they would have sentences that were underlined, um, because many of these stories were coded in terms of what their queer subtexts were. And so that started me to think about, well, how is this uh, story of crime and true crime stories in the press, how is this part of our um, uh, LGBTQ history? And started me sort of digging into newspaper archives and trying to locate more of these kinds of stories. You know, it's strange. I, I was watching something... Um with someone from an older show, probably from the 40s or 50s movie, and, um, and, and there was two guys that were kind of flirty with each other, and I said something. I said, oh, well, you know what they're going to do later. And uh, she said to me that, um, well, they didn't do that back then. <laughs> and and, and it, kind of, it kind of floored me in the sense that, what do you mean she, they didn't do that? Well, they they never did that back then. What you 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 actually think that there were no gay men back then? It never happened, and it just kind of happened. What 1970? Someone drank the water. I, I like what do you? But the thing is, she wasn't being um, rude or mean. She was actually really believed it. So I think there's a lot of people in the straight world that have no idea that uh, gay men existed in, in the old times. Uh, that, yeah, no, I think that's interesting Like the, to, to, to sort of mark this moment somewhere in the late uh, 60s or 70s, that's when 
you know, uh, uh, gay men appeared. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 you know, because I really don't know what to say to that. I'm just like, well, that's that's ridiculous, you know. You know, people are people, humans are humans, there's sexuality and all this stuff, and it, so it might not be accepted or, or outwardly, and it's not going to be on your television, and it's not going to be on, you know, in the public, maybe at certain times, but it's still there, you know. It, it kind of reminded me of when the, I think it was the Iranian leader that said, well, we don't have that homosexual problem because we don't have it, right? And you're kind of thinking, well, you know, right. you couldn't really believe that, right? And there's people that do, and that just so I think this is an important work, and I hope it really gets into the mainstream. Well, it's interesting too uh, to follow on that that thought because what struck me in so many of these press accounts uh, that the victims were oftentimes men who were married, oftentimes men who are married with children, and um, and were clearly engaged in um, homosexual encounters, right? And so, um, you know, the idea that it sort of also points to the, the different ideas about sexuality at the time and how these um, uh, distinctions of hetero and homo, these distinctions of straight and gay weren't as defined, right, in this period that I'm looking at. And, 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 and so... Um, it, it does sort of, I think, make us think about our own identities and 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 the ways in which we organize our sexuality um, categories today. So, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Um, so, what, what was the what was the most? I I, I don't want to say shocking, but what what was the one that maybe <laughs> maybe stuck out most with you um, in all of your history and researching of, of the different errors here? Uh, of uh, homosexuality and how it was perceived, um, and that was there any surprises for you? Right. I mean, in some ways, almost all of these stories um, shocked me. One in terms of the way in which they were in the press. Um, uh, some of these stories were you know, buried on page thirty-eight uh, in the bottom, um, and some of them were on the front page day after day. Um, uh, increasingly, after World War II, um, these stories were sensationalized um, and, and given more space in the press. Um, but yeah, no, I was uh, it, one one challenge for me in researching writing this book was not to mirror the kind of sensationalism in the book that the press was clearly. Um, trafficking in, in terms of these crimes and, and, and really making the headlines and making these um, really uh, detailed, gruesome descriptions of the crime scenes, right? I, I wanted to both um, show the kind of sensationalism and the gruesomeness of these crimes, but also have that kind of empathetic approach to these stories and, and the, the men who were um, victimized in these cases. Um, yeah, there's one case in particular that um, struck me from um, the 1930s. Um, uh, it was a case involving, it was a double murder, actually, um, a case involving um, uh, one victim was in um, New Jersey, 
and he was um, murdered in his apartment. Um, the killer, Kenneth Newey, um, drove his car, took his car and drove to New Orleans where he then encountered um, uh, a man in a hotel in New Orleans and um, seemed to have tried to extort him money, but that didn't work, and then he ended up murdering him in New Orleans. Um, and so this case um, became quite a sensation, mostly in New Orleans, where he was then tried for that second murder. Um, mostly he was tried for that second murder because um, the first murder was... Um, clearly a queer encounter, and the, the New Jersey authorities didn't think they could actually get, a, get him convicted on that murder. Uh, and so the second case in New Orleans was um, involved a very well-respected um, married grandfather um, who was murdered in the hotel room. So that case became uh, seemed by the authorities to be more viable to um, adjudicate. And um, but Newey was this flamboyant figure. He, the press named him the singing, um, I'm sorry, the killer crooner um, because he was a singer on the radio. He had these very good, he was very good looking. He looked like a Hollywood actor. Um, but he also had um, clear kind of um, psychopathic um, qualities to him. At his trial, he wore um, some shoes of one victim and, and the suit of another victim. I mean, he he was wow. very useful character in the in the sensationalizing in the press around this. Um, one one element of this crime that really um, made me stop in the research when I was doing research really um, stopped me in the moment. Um, the the Nui was making the argument that he was insane at the time of the murder, that he was um, not able to, 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 um, to be in control of his actions. And um, the district attorney um, actually used the first murder in which Nui claimed that first victim had come on to him and that's why he had to kill him. And that's the term in decent advances that he used and many others like him used in the court to claim um, uh, a kind of, uh, innocence in, in these in, in these um, murders, and so um, Newey was claiming um, that he, for the New Orleans murder, that he was um, uh, temporarily insane at that moment. The DA was claiming that um, that first murder in New Jersey proves that he's not insane because what he did to protect himself against the gay man coming on to him proves that that's what any sane man would do. <laughs> so yeah. it was a really shocking and, and upsetting kind of argument from the DA here that um, right. one's violent attack on, an, on a gay man's um, attraction for another man is clear evidence of his sanity, of the killer's sanity, right? So, um, But those kinds of arguments that you know shock us today come up again and again in some of these stories. In terms of being shocked, that that sort of homosexual panic defense is the most chilling. You know, I think in some ways the most chilling part of the book is not the crime, but this, uh, the idea that these defenses actually worked. Um, I don't know; it's just remarkable. <laughs> right? No, that's true, and you see. Um, 
I, in these cases, um, while they not, may they may not always have um, been acquitted of the murders, they were often given a lesser um, sentence mm-hmm. by claiming uh, homosexual panic, by claiming indecent advances. I needed to protect myself from this other person. Um, and of course, those kinds of arguments, those kinds of defenses, trafficked in um, larger um, and increasingly through the decades um, leading up to Stonewall, increasingly um, uh, an awareness and a cultural figure of a homosexual as a threatening force. So juries really could understand that kind of um, defense, right? Um, so that, again, I, I, I talk about in the book is the ways in which even the victims in these murders um, were then criminalized and seen as really the perpetrators, right? And so the way that that homosexual panic defense um, really flipped the whole um, courtroom uh, story. Pretty amazing. You know, I was going to say we had the um, author of uh, Tinderbox, you know, uh, mm. Rob Fiesler on, and, and how he was talking about, that was in 73, and there was people in the bar that had been uh, up for charges of homosexuality and decent acts uh, from 67. Um, so people, people really have to realize um, the differences in just in just our short lifetimes, right? Um, you know, homosexual panic as a defense um, continues on, right? Some states have outlawed mm-hmm. it. Um, I don't have the exact number right now, but I believe four or five have have outlawed it as a defense in the courtroom. But that's been a recent phenomenon. Uh, the, that kind of defense has been um, really uh, useful. Uh, particularly uh, in the last uh, uh, half of the 20th century. And uh, I believe the, the two killers of um, Matthew Shepard tried to use that defense as well um, in, their, in their trial. And so th- this is something that, um, uh, as, I, as I write in the book, I you know, track the origins of this theory and um, the post-World War I era in St. Elizabeth Hospital where um, uh, doctors were uh, studying sailors and soldiers, many of them who had come through the war, but um, they were looking at different uh, mental conditions um, and looking at them in terms of within the context of deviant sexualities and had developed this whole theory of homosexual panic. Um, And you know, it comes through a kind of Freudian understanding of human psychology um, that we're, we're all born bisexual, and then as we grow up and mature, we're supposed to repress our homosexual desires and embrace a kind of heterosexual adulthood. Um, and panic, those moments of panic are when we can't control that other side of us, right? And that theory gets transformed in different ways over the decades, but um, it becomes such a compelling um, idea in the courtroom by the 1930s and onward. And, and, but it's never really a theory that has been um, uh, explored much beyond that initial um, defining in, the, in 1921. So, uh, but yet it becomes a compelling legal argument for almost a century now. Well, I guess they're considering it a mental disorder 
um, in those times. So there's something wrong with you. And, um, you know, uh, I, I guess that would be the point of view. Um, dur- during the Cold War, how did, how did things change? Right. Well, um, uh, two things, it seemed, in, in, in the crime uh, stories that I looked at um, in, the, in the post-World War II and late 40s and 50s. Um, one is that, uh, as, as we, many of us might know, that, that um, homosexuality became part of the national threat. Um, uh, it became part of the, the communist threat, right? It was, it was the expulsion of homosexuals from the State Department, from government, because they, they, they were imagined as being security threats for the nation, right? And that played out then as um, concerns for uh, homosexuals across the country. Um, there was a series of articles um, about crime uh, in the post-war period. There were a series of articles published in Collier's Magazine, which was fairly middle-class, middle-brown magazine and, uh, in the period. And, and many of these articles um, were focused on the problem of sexual deviancy as well. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the reporter would, would go with the vice squads um, and report in detail about where homosexual men hung out at um, uh, bus stations or in parks and, and so detailing this kind of world. Now, of course, coupled with that was Kinsey's um, study of homosexuality that came out in uh, 1948, and and that, of course, upended all kinds of ideas about homosexuality as being a kind of marginal um, condition um, of a small group of, of men, right? And, and what he showed is that um, homosexuality was much more pervasive across all segments of society, all classes in different regions of the country, and this really unsettled. Um, both cultural ideas and medical ideas about um, the nature of homosexuality. And so these two kinds of stories were playing out in the crime um, crime stories as well, this notion that um, around any, well, around any corner it could be a homosexual, but also you don't know who that person might be, right? So the post-war brought this whole idea of um, uh, queer men as unidentifiable, much like the communist. Who's the neighbor? Let's be suspicious of the people next to us. Um, and, you know, Kinsey's theories kind of fed into that as much as they um, expand it in really useful ways, an understanding of homosexuality. Um, so the crime stories really focused on the mysteries um, of these men. They focused on uh, victims who were um, could could not have been understood as homosexual, but all of a sudden we understand from um, the life that um, the reporter is able to 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 write about in the in the in the in the, in the crime itself. So um, these two factors are really crucial in that period. Do you think Dr. Kinsey's reports were good and helpful or not? I think that they 
certainly were useful in developing a new consciousness about sexuality um, and period. Um, you know, uh, for as I talk about in the book, uh, homosexuality, theories of homosexuality uh, emerged alongside theories of criminality from the late 19th century on. And one of the crucial elements of both of those theories up until the 1940s was that you were born. These were defective qualities. You were born a pickpocketer, and you were born a homosexual, or you were born um, an arsonist, right? That crime is something that's genetic, um, something that's um, biological, um, and, and sexual deviancy as a crime was also seen that way. So by the post-war period, this thinking begins to shift um, into thinking of homosexuality as a developmental um, uh, problem, right? That you're not born this way, but you, you, it's a problem of parenting. It's a problem of your environment, right? And so Kinsey comes in and kind of unsettles both of those theories and talks about, um, again, this kind of broader experience of homosexuality across um, across uh, different classes, across geographies. And so in many ways, he's able to to help and foster the early homophile movements of the 1950s into the 1960s, seeing uh, homosexuality as not this kind of um, disease condition of a minority of people, but, um, but rather seeing it as a more pervasive kind of uh, practice and was very useful in that way. So when someone picks up your book here and reads it, what do you want them to get out of that? That's always a good question and a tough question. I think, you know, these stories are, for the most part, these stories haven't been read since they were first published. Um, going to the New York Times Index, for example, for the 1940s, you can't go in the index and say, oh, let's look up um, queer murders or gay murders. That, that's, there's no listing of that, right? Um, these were stories that um, have really been forgotten. Um, but these are stories, I think, uh, that really illuminate uh, kind of uh, criminalization of queer people, right? We kind of know, right, that the laws were in place, that um, we know about that uh, there were police raids on the streets and in uh, bars in Greenwich Village or in uh, part, uh, certain bars in Los Angeles. We know that these were happening in a kind of um, abstract sense, Um what these crime stories show us is how these practices actually played out, both in the press and in the crime, uh, in, in, in the courtroom as well. And so one thing I really want folks to see is this kind of legacy of uh, what happens when you um, criminalize a group of citizens and then you harness um, uh, the medical field and the, and the, and the, the, the media 
to, to amplify this kind of um, uh, criminalization. So I was now. So if we, speaking of that, if we take a a person that was um, uh, living in the Leave It to Beaver era, you know, you're in the '60s here, married, kids, mm. uh, job, um, mm. and you're homosexual, uh, but mm. under the cover. Um, so you get caught in a situation with um, involved in some sort of uh, sexual uh, scandal with another man. Um, what what would happen to you in in your life? Well, um, there many things uh, could be threatened in that in that situation. Right, um, you could lose your job. You could uh, often would be arrested. I talk about um, uh, a case in um, Ohio uh, in the nineteen sixty two. Um, and it was a public restroom in the middle of town that the police had created a sting operation around, and they had actually positioned a, uh, a cameraman with a small handheld camera behind a two-way mirror in the bathroom to capture um, evidence of men um, having sex or soliciting each other, and then the cameraman would um, use his walkie-talkie to announce to a policeman outside, and then they would be arrested. And, you know, most of those men were married, uh, many of them uh, with kids. And you know, these, they would lose their job, their name would be in the paper, they would be either um, uh, sentenced to uh, prison or they would be often sentenced to mental institutions where they would be put under various painful treatments to, um, to uh, change them, right? Uh, one of the effects of thinking of homosexuality as a, de a developmental problem, um, that it's out of poor parenting or because of the environment you grew up in, is the idea that you can make them change, right? You can, you can give them a certain kind of treatment to change them. And, and we see that a lot in the, in the, in the arrest of these men and, and the effort to then, um, either imprison them or, or oftentimes um, subject them to treatment. Pretty amazing. I, I remember when I was listening to your book, there was a story about um, uh, the man that uh, um, was at the subway bathroom and got killed, and, and you talked about how in the paper it was, uh, mm. it was just talked about as a murder, nothing about uh, mm. it was a cruising bathroom that no, that, you know, people went to right right yes that was um that was a 1936 right case that um this is the challenge of the research um the press was uh reluctant to be explicit with a lot of these stories again after world war ii they were more um eager to be explicit because it fit into a broader uh, concern about homosexuals on the home front. Um, but before World War II, there was a lot of innuendo, a lot of coded language. Um, in that case, uh, New York City, Times Square, subway station, um, if you begin to put that in context of the period, um, you see how um, 
that murder was 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 a kind of uh, pickup that had gone uh, a robbery that was turned into a pickup that was uh, turned deadly, and uh, the press though uh, at that time would not have named it as such. One thing that is very clear from all these uh, accounts I, I researched, the there was very little sympathy for any of these victims. And the idea that a homosexual could be a crazed killer is clear in the press. The idea that the homosexual could be a, an innocent victim is not in, the, in these press reports. And so, um, and in fact, some of these accounts, uh, you have um, the, the discovery of the crime scene and the victim, but the press is reporting it as initial um, account of the crime, not knowing what happened. Once uh, it's reported that uh, the crime involved or uh, other men, it involved a homosexual pickup of some sort, then the, the press uh, completely kind of ignored any details about the victim. Initially, they may be empathetic to the victim. Once, it, once the queer subtext becomes clearer, then the victim becomes really um, marginal to the, to the story. When do you think that's changed? <laughs> Has it changed? <laughs> uh, well, that's what, you know, that's what, you know, that brings up the conversation. Do you think, how far has it gone and, and how much has it changed? I mean, uh, technically, um, in some countries, um, gay, gay um, rights have gone a long way. In, in Canada, it's part of the Charter of Rights, and uh, you can't get fired. You know, it's, it's come a long way, and there's actually laws on the book about marriage. The U.S., it's more about a Supreme Court, you know, a ruling, and you can still get fired in a lot of states, and uh, there's still a lot of issues. So, um, but uh, do, do you think that the, the overall thought um, like what I'm saying is, when you take a you take a gay gay man that's been a victim of a crime, um, it's changed in the sense that the media, in general, doesn't look at that as, well, you know, he was gay, so he deserved it, or they don't walk away from it. They actually talk about it. Right. No, I think that's true. I think that um, the the media the press has come a long way through activism of the 70s and 80s, um, pushing back on the kinds of um, uh, uh, stories and how these um, crimes were reported on. Um, I think laws have changed as well, so those kinds of prejudices may not be playing out as acutely as they were um, before Stonewall in, the, in, that, in those days. I think still that um, uh, um, uh, for people of color, for uh, trans citizens, I think that their stories are are still um, uh, not as public. Um, I think that uh, cases of, of um, uh, murders for, for those communities are not very um, well reported and certainly not in mainstream press in any way, and I think that's still efforts to make uh, real accounting. Um, I also think how those cases play out in the uh, justice system 
um, still is layered with a lot of discrimination around it. So um, there's still efforts there to to change the ways in which these um, crimes are understood and, and the way in which we understand the victims of these crimes, right, as, yeah. as victims. You know, in D.C., that's so, I mean, it's so true that the trans community is is not reported accurately or nearly enough. I'm I'm kind of curious historically, like, you know, did you run across in your research like any sort of intersectional intersectionality between like, you know, are, are, was there a difference the way they might treat a you know black gay man versus a white gay man? Would he be more reported? Would, would he be reported at all? I'm just curious, like, did did you run across any of that? Or maybe you didn't because it's not there <laughs> in the newspapers. Right. So um, there is, yeah, I do talk about um, a, a number of cases, uh, mostly in the mm-hmm. 40s and 50s, um, where uh, it was um, either uh, um, two African-American men, one murders the other, or... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one uh, that the victim is, is a white man, and, and the, and the uh, killer is an African American man. And um, it was interesting because, of course, uh, I say this in the book: the, the crime pages were as segregated as the rest of society was at that time. So it was rare to find um, any article about an African American man being murdered um, in the mainstream press. Um, mm-hmm. within this context. Um, what I did encounter w- was uh, this particular case, a couple of cases actually, where the victim was a white man, and it was in the New York Times. It was sort of um, in the mainstream press and got um, some publicity around that. Um, it was a really sensational case that um, of... Uh, uh, an African-American man killing another African-American man in Brooklyn in the mid-1950s. It was a case that I had to dive into the African-American press to really get the details on. And and in those articles, they talked about how it was the most difficult case that the Brooklyn Police Department had seen in decades. Yet there was not one mention of it in New York Times or any of the mainstream um, New York newspapers, right? I, I only sort of found it through African-American press. And so in that respect, yeah, you know, that sort of shows the ways in which these crimes and the story of, the, of, of these kinds of crimes did fall along um, uh, racial lines. Absolutely. Well, I wonder, too, now, how much did you come across people that were cross-dressing and, and that kind of uh, storyline um, in, in the old times? Mm. That is funny, because I, I was, again, the research here was um, fascinating for me, but also um, maddening, because um, I would use uh, the newspaper databases, right? So... So many of these newspapers now have been digitalized, so you can go into these databases and do a search for key terms, something that you can't do in microfilm back in the day. Um, and so uh, this is how I was 
finding a lot of these stories um, just using keywords like um, sailor found murdered in hotel and then sifting through all the articles within a certain time period and seeing what what sort of comes out of that. Um, and I was doing searches for um, uh, cross-dressing or, or, or any female impersonator was a term that was often used um, in that period. And not finding very much around that. A couple of cases in the 30s that I talk about, um, but not a lot um, was coming out. Now, again, um, what I'm looking at is how these stories are making it into a public um, space in the press itself, right, um, and how the press reports on it and how different newspapers report on it in different ways. Uh, it also speaks to the fact that this is probably nowhere near the extent to these kinds of crimes, right? It's just the crimes that made it into the press. And um, so there weren't that many cases that I could find around female impersonators or cross-dressers in this period. Wow. You know, um, so where do, you, where do you want to go next after this book? And, and do you want to continue on these, this type of research? I do. Um, I do think that um, uh, queer true crime research is really fascinating and can really open up uh, new ways of recovering histories that, that have been lost to us um, in, in, in possibly right, that, that kind of intersectional qualities of these histories. And I do think you know, I, I'm fascinated by... Um, crime in a historical context and what happens when we um, look at crime stories or a crime, what, what windows does it give us into um, queer experience, right? And so I, I do want to look uh, more uh, historical true crime and, and see how that can, again, open up sort of new ways into um, queer experience in the past. Um, historians do uh, and have focused a lot on um, the kind of cultural life of, of um, queer experience, right? I think a lot of the histories that we have are about the ways in which men and women have been able to survive and find a world and find a life uh, for themselves to despite the criminalizations, despite the discriminations that they had to endure. Um, what I'm interested in is how those kinds of criminalizations um, and how those discriminations um, were, were um, experienced or uh, represented, right, in the criminal justice system, in the press, um, in, those, in, in, in novels or films or whatever that is, right? So, how that how crime, which has been such a compelling uh, framework for homosexuality for so long, what can that help us see or understand about um, sexuality more generally? Mm. Uh, how, how's the feedback been? Um, have you had any uh, negative backlash on this? I haven't. No. Um, so, yeah, I'm always ready for <laughs> Well, nowadays you have to be, yeah, yeah. There's, there's all sorts, you know. So yeah, I, I haven't I, had too much negative, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, someone having a bad day could give you a, 
negative feedback, right? I mean, you just never know. Um, it's, it's, you know so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, the, you know, there's, there has been some kind of um, comment about uh, my use of the word queer uh, throughout the book um, and why I don't use a gay or why I don't use LGBTQ all the time. Um, and so that, that has been some of the feedback. Of course, as I mentioned before, um, so many of these victims um, would not identify themselves as gay at the time, right? They wouldn't, you know, they're married, they have children, they uh, might have had sexual encounters with men um, occasionally throughout their lives, right? So um, I use this term uh, queer and queer to crime because I wanted to think about the broader um, uh, understanding of, of the victims of these kinds of crimes. So what is that term about? Like, So when you say queer men, um, so for the listeners that are totally unaware of, of what that means, how would you, how would you uh, give a definition to that? Um, right. Uh, you know, I think that uh, these men in these stories uh, live their lives mostly as what we would call straight men. For, for, for a number of these men in the book. There are some that were clearly living their life as what we might say a gay man, gay man today. Um, so for me, queer is a useful framework uh, to think about the, that bigger, what Kinsey called this Kinsey scale, right? This bigger uh, uh, con container uh, that men experienced uh, uh, sexual encounters while still being married and uh, having kids. I don't want to uh, conjecture and say, well, they were just gay, but they were repressed, because, of course, that also uh, denies any sense of bisexuality. And so, you know, it's like, you, I want to have a term that can talk about um, the range of, of experiences here. Okay. Now, um, do you have a website or a place people can go and find out more about you and what you do? Right, yes. Um, you can go to jamespolchin.com, uh, and there's more information about the book. Um, there's a Q&A and other links to um, interviews I've done about the book as well. Fantastic. Okay, we will have your book and website listed on ours as well, and uh, we appreciate you coming here and talking about the book. Um, I, do, do, just, do you think that um, current conditions and the, the climate of the of, of the U.S. right now is is it uh, something to be worried about? Uh, as far as homosexuality I, and and all that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that this, um, one of the things I, I want to do in this book is to remind us of how easy it is to criminalize um, uh, groups of people and, again, how that criminalization gets played out uh, in, in across um, uh, different parts of society, in the media, in uh in the medical establishments and in other other areas, and how that gets um, becomes a kind of um, compelling idea 
about those people. And so I think uh, right now we are in a moment where um, people are being criminalized um, in very um, horrible ways that um, we need to be very aware of and, and respond to. Wow. So you think it's, yeah. it, 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 we can actually um, unsee or unring the bell that's been rung? Like how, how can we go back into the closet, so to speak? Well, there's, look, there's plenty of folks um, who are um, uh, in positions of power now who would like to um, repeal uh, gay marriage, who would like to uh, return to a period where uh, uh, gay men, uh, LGBTQ people, and broadly are, are recriminalized or criminalized in more dire ways than they are now. So I think, yeah, I I, I don't hold up uh, any sense that um, we have uh, passed a point where we need to worry about that. Um, I think that um, uh, our rights are always under threat. Um, and uh, we need to be vigilant for that. Mm. Well, something to think about. Um, again, well, thank you very much for, for talking about this, and it's an important book and subject. Great. Thank you. Thanks, James. Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to LegacyFoodStorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick, go. our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.